This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express Card. And we here on Savor are what you might call food explorers. It has been our actual job to go to cool places and eat, like, a lot of the food there. And then talk about it. And then talk about it into these microphones, which is a crazy dream job. Yes. Well, if you're like us and willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people like us who are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is not the American South. This is the northernmost point in the Caribbean. And if you begin to turn your head to that, it all fits in. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about New Orleans. Yeah, a little old city called New Orleans. <laughs> you probably haven't heard of it. So, okay, yeah, a couple months ago, we spent five days in New Orleans collecting audio from all kinds of folks. Uh, authors, historians, chefs, restaurant managers, bartenders, pastry chefs. About 18 different interviews. And you'll be hearing pieces of those over a series of episodes coming out over the next few weeks looking at things like gumbo, king cake, no shortage of topics. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. In fact, it's going to be difficult to... Choose the topics, I would say. Oh, yeah. That's a problem for future us. Yay, future us. But it was a whirlwind of a trip. And this also happened to be the week before Thanksgiving. And all of us forgot about, we totally forgot about Thanksgiving. And for those of you familiar with American Thanksgiving, you might realize that's not the best time to ask people who work in the food industry. Or anyone. Yeah. But especially food industry to come talk to you. Yes. No one's going to be around or want to do that. No. Um, so that was that was a bit of a, a thing that happened. And I was coming from vacation in Florida, so I wasn't home for like three weeks because we went to New York after Immediately New from, yeah. We flew. Yeah. You had this one backpack that was bafflingly filled with everything you needed for three weeks away from home. And 
Florida, New Orleans, and New York in the middle of the winter. Yeah, I call it my my sisterhood of traveling backpack, even though it doesn't really make sense. But it's been with me on many trips, and it can fit an amazing amount of things in there. But I will say I didn't pack very well for this trip. I packed as if I was going to Antarctica. <laughs> but no warm clothes, because it was really warm in Florida at the time. Anyway. <laughs> but yes, New Orleans was a great choice for our second Saver City miniseries extravaganza, our first being on Asheville. Mm-hmm. We tried all of the food, or we we tried to, and all of the drinks. We tried to. Uh-huh. Um, and we went out to not one but two festivals. Oh, yes. It was quite the undertaking. As you might be aware, New Orleans has like a little bit of a food and drink scene. Just a little bit. It's not intimidating at all to try to tackle it. No, nah, not at all. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. This was both of our second times in New Orleans and Super Producer Dylan's first time. Right, Lauren? You've been before? Yes, yes. And uh, this is also another fun with pronunciation episode. We should really do a supercut of all the ways we heard New Orleans pronounced while we were there. I think the way that I say it changed over the course of the trip. Oh, yes. I, I don't think I have a consistent way of saying it. Oh, no. Apologies for that in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to the spectacular film Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, with a soundtrack by Third Eye Blind, <laughs> by the way, I used to think I had the best New Orleans accent. Uh, I would show it off to people oh. at school. Oh, friend. But sadly, I do not think this was the case. I still remember the line, though, and I, I'm not above embarrassing myself for Oh, podcast entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Will, yes. will you do it for us? All right, all right. I wasn't exaggerating when I said these were the hottest peppers in Louisiana. <laughs> that was spectacular. <laughs> Actually, I'm very sorry to everyone from New Orleans, but if we can find the quote from the original movie, I was doing that bad accent from the movie very well. I wasn't exaggerating when I said they were the hottest peppers in Louisiana. (laughs) But, I digress. Let's ask our question. New New Orleans. Orleans. What is it? Well, New Orleans is a city located in the southeastern corner of Louisiana, which is in the southeastern corner of the United States. It's a port town just off the Gulf of Mexico with water access to the Gulf, and it's uh, snuggled up next to the Mississippi River. A total of nearly 1.3 million people live in the metro area, but the actual city houses just under 400,000. Again, smaller than I thought, but it is a huge tourist town. Over a million people line the streets during Mardi Gras, not to mention the seemingly endless events like Jazz Fest or the two we went to, Boudin Bourbon and Beer and Po'boy Fest. Hospitality and tourism make up a major part of the economy. And that means food and drink. Depending on who you ask, New Orleans hosted between 10 and 17 million visitors in 2017 who collectively spent between 7 and $8 billion. And Okay, every city is unique, but New Orleans is, like, real unique. Uh, It's over 300 years old. It just had its 300th anniversary last year, actually, Uh, which I know folks from lots of other regions of the world will think, like, oh, that's real cute. Uh, But no, that's quite old for the United States. And its geography and port access have meant that it's been a place of interest to all of the cultures that have come together 
or been brought together um, to make up American culture. But New Orleans wrote its recipe a little bit differently. That quote that you heard at the top was from Dr. Jessica Harris, who's a journalist, podcaster, and the author of several books exploring African and Caribbean foodways. That quote, the South is north from here, fundamentally changed how we thought about New Orleans. She wasn't the only one who said it either. We heard it echoed from Dr. Howard Conyers, who is both a barbecue pit master and an actual rocket scientist. I will say New Orleans is very much a different city from the rest of the South. It's really a different city from the rest of the United States. It's an international city. I will say it's definitely the northernmost Caribbean city. You have to start thinking about the Haitian Revolution and who owned the territories at a certain time before New Orleans became part of the United States. And the food experiences I've been able to be a part of, I don't think I've been able to do that anywhere else. The folks we spoke with might be a little biased, but if you go there, you feel it. And everyone talked about it. Here's Katie Kasparian, co-owner of Arnaud's, a restaurant that celebrated its 100th birthday last year. People celebrate a Monday like it's, you know, not happening again the next week. I, and, and that's what I say, that people have a joie de vivre here that's unmatched. And, you know, it doesn't have to be anything really crazy going on that people are just out and have a good time. And this from the general manager, Christopher Horner, over at the Bombay Club, a cocktail bar in the heart of the French Quarter. New Orleans is uh, like no other city I've ever been in. It has a, uh, a great feel all the time. It's comfortable. Um, it's, it's not perfect. And uh, that's, that's, that's New Orleans. And here's Rebecca Shatman, the general manager at Broussard's, another one of the city's oldest restaurants. There's no other place like it. There's nowhere else that you can walk and feel the history, but also feel engaged with your food and your senses and this, the vibrancy. And there's, it's just a feeling. You know, it's the people, it's the environment, it's the history, it's the culture. It's how we continue to honor the past, but really want to push forward. As author William Faulkner once wrote, the past isn't dead in New Orleans. That was also echoed by a uh, tourist leader that I, on my first time in New Orleans, it's a ghost tour, and he said, oh. he said it this way, <laughs> the dead don't stay dead in New Orleans. Um, that's something we experienced while we were there. Coming, Not the dead people part, but well. Well. Mm. Coming from Atlanta, where things over 10 years old are torn down, we all felt this history in the air. Restaurants are bars made of old stone, above-ground cemeteries, not to mention ghost tour upon ghost tour and ghost story upon ghost story. We missed our scheduled ghost tour, and I'm still so mad about it. But our interviewees made up for it. Oh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, especially doing a show about food, the history of New Orleans is, is very present. You can tell the whole story of the city through food and drink. So, a quick history lesson. Brief, because New Orleans is, as we mentioned, an intimidating city to tackle. Oh yeah, we've probably left things out. We're sorry. We're trying to not become a, like, 40-hour <laughs> New Orleans podcast. <laughs> I-, I wouldn't be opposed, per se. No. But we- it would be a shift in yeah. direction. Uh-huh. In 1682, explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sceaux de la Salle, claimed the Mississippi and its entire basin for France, naming the region for his king, Louis IV. 
Prior to that, the Spanish had explored the area a bit, but not really done anything with it, um, other than leave behind a few diseases that would, you know, wreak havoc on the indigenous peoples who had been there for at least 6,000 years. These were primarily the Chirimacha, who uh, foraged, cultivated, and hunted all sorts of foods. Uh, pecans, sassafras, which was ground to make a uh, filet, which is a thickener for soups and stews. Uh, they had corns and beans and squash and tomatoes, crawfish and oysters and alligator and ducks and deer and bison. Um, but yes, the French. Nouvelle Orleans was founded by Jean-Baptiste de Moyen de Bienville, who came from New France, a.k.a. Canada, In 1718, it was named for French Regent Philippe II, Duc d'Orleans. The city expanded from the Vieux Carré, or the Old Square, which later evolved into what we call the French Quarter. And starting around 1723, the city built up on this sort of crescent-shaped high ground around a sharp bend of the Mississippi River. Hence the nickname, Crescent City. I've always wondered. (laughs) Since it was a port city, it quickly became an important trading town and the capital of the French colony. The conditions were kind of miserable, though. A muggy, mosquito-filled swamp. So a lot of the first people sent to Louisiana were criminals. The only ones that France could get to go. Mm -hmm. Historians like to describe it as the impossible but inevitable city. A story we heard while we were there is the the colony requested France send boatloads of women. Can't very well have a colony without women. But imagine, you're a French lady, you get on a boat, and you arrive at this swamp full of criminals and mosquitoes. They weren't happy. No. 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 They wanted to eat away their sorrows with bread. I can relate. Oh, yeah. But wheat didn't grow well in Louisiana. So they went up to the governor's house, banging on pots and pans, demanding high-quality bread be on the next shipment from France, or they were out of there. But instead, Madame Langlois, a family friend of Governor Bienville, taught the women how to make cornbread. That is how the story goes, anyway. Mm-hmm. The settlers made a lot of these culinary adaptations, partially because the governor had collaborated with the native peoples up in New France to feed the colonists there, and it really shaped what New Orleans cuisine would become. Here's Liz Williams, the founder and director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. But I think that the reason there is a cuisine in Louisiana is because we actually had a French background, as opposed to what so much of America, new America had, which was English. So if you were an English colonist, you wanted to maintain your identity as an English person, so you wanted to eat like an English person, and there were actually settlements in the early days in America where people starved to death, and not because there wasn't food, but because they felt that the food of the savages was not the food that they would eat because they were too English. Whereas, since we were French, we didn't have that attitude. And our attitude was, if it's here, it's French, because this is as much France as France. So if we have to eat an alligator, it's okay because it's a French alligator. It was around the time of this supposed cornbread revolution, the middle of the 1700s, that we start to see Cajun communities form. 
We also talked to Amanda McPhillan, the Associate Director of Museum Programs at the Historic New Orleans Collective, which is a museum research center and publisher located in the French Quarter. Amanda, who is Cajun herself, spoke a bit about this along with Jessica. I guess a bit the history of the Cajun is they are, uh, were originally called the Acadians. They're a group of French settlers that were originally from the Nova Scotia, kind of East Coast area of Canada. In the mid-18th century, around 1755, the British took over that area of Canada and actually forcefully expelled all about 12,000 Acadians from that region, meaning they loaded them onto boats, they shipped them up and down the East Coast, breaking up communities, breaking up, I mean, friends never saw each other again. Thousands of people died of disease and of drowning when some of the ships sank. It was horrific. And some of them did settle in other parts of Canada. Um, Some settled along the East Coast, but the largest group of these actually over about a 20-year period came down to Louisiana because at that point it was a Spanish territory and Spain and France were on good relations at that point and they needed good Roman Catholics to, who knew how to work the land to come into Louisiana and go out from New Orleans into the rest of Louisiana and settle that land. And so they did. And they've so they've been here since the 1760s um, and they wherever they kind of landed whether it be along the water or kind of in the prairie parts of the state they um, made homes there made communities i'm just going to add two things <laughs> is certainly that expulsion from nova scotia was the kind of cajun trail of tears if you will mm-hmm. the same thing as mm-hmm. you know what happened um but we all sort of know it because in high school or junior high school or whatever, somebody made you read Evangeline. You know, yeah. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks bearded with moss and garment. The Cajun diaspora. Mm-hmm. That's what Evangeline is about. As the Acadians built up these rural settlements and mingled with other folks in the area, Cajun culture developed. A specific dialect of French, their own cuisine, their own style of music— Meanwhile, as Amanda said, it was also in the 1760s that Spain takes over the Louisiana Territory for what would be 37 very formative years. Influenced by the uh, Muslim Arabs and Africans of the Iberian Peninsula, the Spanish brought a taste for heavier spices and also created greater opportunity for communities of free people of color to thrive in the city. Two huge fires in the late 1700s destroyed most of the French architecture in the city and made way for a lot of Spanish stuff that's still around today. And, of course, New Orleans remained during this time an important trading post, both for goods and culture. Nearby colonies in Haiti and Cuba gave New Orleans their distinctive red beans. A trade through Central and South America brought in coffee and bananas and a taste for hot peppers. This is also when part of the drinking culture of New Orleans was born. Here's Liz Williams again. In the early days, in the early days, the city of New Orleans, whether it was French or Spanish governing, made the, the, the money that was made by selling tavern licenses, which were auctioned to the highest bidder, and the taxes on the sale of liquor were what funded the city of New Orleans, the government of the city of New Orleans. So obviously, the more drinking you did, the better it was for the city. Another cultural note, and the history is a little difficult to pin down here, but by the 1730s, Carnival and Mardi Gras celebrations were woven into the culture. They dipped out a bit during Spanish control, but blossomed once again when the city came under U.S. ownership. The parades got started in the mid-1850s. A mysterious society of businessmen, dubbed the Mystic Crew of Comus, 
organized a parade outfitted with torches, marching bands, and floats in 1857, cementing the tradition. Oh, and in case you're like me and you didn't know, crew, K-R-E-W-E, these are sort of these themed groups that march together in the parades. Yeah. Oh, one of our, not interview subjects, but the marketing director at Brennan's talked to us about her crew baka. Yes. Her crew called Krubaka, which is Star Wars themed. Yes. Oh, that was it, delightful. She shared pictures. It was fantastic. Also, they kind of vaguely invited us to their Mardi Gras <laughs> celebrations. And I hope you're serious because bags are getting packed. <laughs> yes. Um, back in the timeline, as the colony expanded, Europeans were also bringing more and more enslaved Africans into the region. And that's where Louisiana got rice from, and the use of okra as a soup thickener, and the tradition of frying foods like chicken. France reclaimed ownership of New Orleans in 1800, but only three years later in 1803, Napoleon sold it to the United States as part of the $15 million Louisiana purchase. However, the city remained pretty French. Until 1830, most people living in Louisiana spoke French. The Louisiana Purchase did bring a lot of new folks into the area, though, Americans with ancestry and traditions from elsewhere in Europe. And just one year after the Louisiana Purchase, the Haitian Revolution concluded. During this uprising of enslaved people of color against the French, a lot of white plantation owners fled to South Louisiana and brought their slaves with them. Some free people of color came as well. And this melded in an even deeper Afro-Caribbean influence into the dishes of the area, your gumbo and etouffee and jambalaya. In 1812, Andrew Jackson garnered national attention for his leadership during the War of 1812's Battle of New Orleans, which deterred 7,500 British soldiers with a coalition of pirates, free people of color, and Tennessee volunteers. Chef Isaac Toops, co-founder of Toops Meadery, which is delicious. I ate there my first time in New Orleans while my best friend and travel buddy cried over her ex-boyfriend. And I was like, I'm going to awkwardly eat this meat and try to console you, okay? (laughs) Um, He's also the author of several books, three-time James Beard Best Chef of the South semifinalist and finalist, and yes, Top Chef contestant. He offered up this song version of these events mid-interview. In 1814, we took a little trip, along with Colonel Jackson, down the mighty Mississippi, We took a little bacon and we took a little beans, fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Oh, it was great. Did you put in this cultural note about the War of 1812 just to have him sing about it? Not just (laughs) to have him sing, but that was definitely a plus. Yeah. uh, Also, interesting side note, by the time the Battle of New Orleans took place, the treaty to end the War of 1812 had already been signed. It just took a while to get word out to New Orleans. By this point, New Orleans was a rich city. In the mid-19th century, you could find the largest concentration of millionaires between New Orleans and Baton Rouge due to things like the slave trade and sugar plantations. The Civil War changed this deeply. Uh, New Orleans went from an area of wealth to one of poverty and racial tension. Free people of color and emancipated slaves entered local politics and then were forced out in the 1870s as the Ku Klux Klan rose to power. To cover the labor shortage, plantation owners brought immigrants from the Philippines, China, and Sicily. And eventually, a lot of Italians came over due to political strife in that whole area. 
The Chinese mostly kept their traditional foods, and for decades there were distinct Chinatown areas and restaurants in New Orleans, but the Filipinos and Italians had a pretty deep influence on Creole cuisine, uh, Creole cuisine being the cuisine of the city. We spoke with Amy Sins, the founder of Lang La, a culinary entertainment company, as she describes it, a traveling food show named after the aforementioned Madame Lingua. New Orleans is, I think, one of the few places where when you go to get a Snickers bar or your Reese's peanut butter cups at the grocery store, right next to it is a little bag of dried shrimp. And that is thanks to the Manila men who taught us that you can take the sweet lake shrimp, dry them in the sun. If you'd like to eat them as a snack, you can. But if you are making a seafood gumbo and your stock just needs a little more fortification, you throw those shrimp in. That's, you know, the Filipino community introduced us to that, but they don't get full credit for why our seafood gumbo can be so delicious. Around the 1850s is when the Sicilians started to move in in mass, and they introduced New Orleans to the canned tomato. The canned tomato single-handedly transformed every New Orleans dish, so it kind of turned into Cajun was rustic country, Creole was fancy city, and then it was like, does it have a tomato or does it not have a tomato? We'll talk more about the interplay between Cajun and Creole in a bit. But so, at the same time, the post-war period produced a lot of art, museums, electrified streetcars, and music. Yes, jazz. By the late 19th century, New Orleans was developing jazz as we know it. We spoke with Eric Seifert, a historian with the aforementioned New Orleans Historic Collective, about, well, about a lot of jazz history, but of particular interest might be the history of the iconic Second Line. If you didn't know, Second Lines are parades descended from jazz funerals. Nowadays, they're popular as something you might do for your wedding. Or like a Tuesday. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It is a celebratory event that invites participation. You and Super Producer Dylan were invited to join a Second Line while we were there. Oh, yeah. One was passing by us, and it almost swept us up. It was a great experience for me because I was on the phone trying to speak with someone, and I learned New Orleans is not a great city. (laughs) for trying to hear someone on the phone. (laughs) And this participation, that's where the name comes from, at least in part. The folks hosting and organizing the parade, which in a funeral, this would be the family of the deceased, is the first line. And those that follow behind them, often dancing and singing, they are the second line. To this day, they are a huge part of the atmosphere of the French Quarter. And and they grew out of that poverty and that racial tension that I mentioned a minute ago, the need for people to support each other when the government or businesses were refusing to support them. Here's Eric. You really see the rise in social aid and pleasure clubs or mutual and benevolent associations um, around the 1880s and 90s. And essentially these are they're, they're community-based organizations that exist outside of church that are often for the purpose of not only building community, but supporting community members. So you might, you know, you pay your dues to get into the group and they might help you out if you need some kind of assistance, they might help you out with your funeral. As, some, as their functions, these groups, churches, um, social aid and pleasure clubs and mutual and, and benevolent associations sponsor um, club parades where the clubs will raise money and put on a parade, the club will hire bands to go with them on the parade to have music 
and um, usually dress uh, in some pretty sharp clothes that uh, you know kind of announce who they are, are usually quite colorful and loud. And of course, there's an, a sense of claiming space within the city, both, both visually and um, through the volume of the music that you get. Again, these are largely marginalized groups, right? Uh, so this is an opportunity where you can say, this is our city, you have to hear us, you have to see us, here we are, this is our space. We don't have to play this, this game that we play typically of fitting in. And then people f would form a second line to join in, uh, you know, and, and to dance and to enjoy the music. You know, some, some members might be uh, pay dues in a couple groups. Um, and if you do, they will come out for your funeral and make sure that you have a appropriate funeral. This includes um, the performance of a hymn on the way to the church, um, a service at the church, a dirge as, as the procession leaves the church and goes to the cemetery. You march really slowly. Um, and there's a real sense of, of grief in the music. You eventually cut the body loose uh, at burial, um, it, which is when uh, the soul is then free to ascend, right, uh, from its earthly troubles. At that point, you would play popular music, and it's usually jazz at this point, right? But it, it's popular music of the style of the band, and they lead the, the group away from the cemetery, um, and that's when you'll see people dancing and forming a, a second line as well. Uh, this tradition really, you know, by the, it, it really is strong up and through the 40s and into the 50s. The creativity and improvisation of jazz is something that is so vital and so parallel to the cocktail culture and cuisine. In more than one interview, that came up. And food and drinks were often part of any experience you would have with jazz at funerals or picnics or in clubs. The late 1800s is also when cocktails started coming up in, in American culture in general, but certainly in New Orleans. And New Orleans cocktail culture is definitely its own episode or several because the city was a perfect storm for mixed drinks at the time. Carbonation technology was advancing, the flavoring industry was getting big, improved shipping speeds brought more fresh and preserved produce in, and most importantly for New Orleans, being an international port that was also on the Mississippi River meant that bartenders had both whiskey from Kentucky and all kinds of booze from Europe and the Caribbean to play with. And because New Orleans had always been a drinking town, when Prohibition came in the early 20th century, it didn't quite hit New Orleans the same way it hit the rest of America. You know, we have the reputation for being the wettest city in America during Prohibition. If you read anything about Prohibition or you watch documentaries or whatever, they're always about Chicago and New York. And that's because those were the two most violent places. Whereas other places, you had good citizens who decided not to sell alcohol anymore because it was against the law. Whereas in New Orleans, the people who were selling alcohol before continued to sell alcohol afterwards because nobody really took it seriously. And there was not a city ordinance that made it against the law to sell alcohol, so the police didn't have to arrest you. And Huey Long was the governor, and he decided that we didn't need a state law about it. Only, it was only against the federal law. And, uh, and so you needed a fed 
to arrest you. Yeah. Izzy Einstein was a Fed, and it was his job as a federal agent um, enforcing the law to go from city to city and see how long it would take to get a drink in a particular town. And then they would know how many agents to send and all that sort of thing. He had a protocol, and it was that when he got into the taxi from wherever he was to go to his hotel, he would begin the, to, the timing. So he got into the taxi in New Orleans, gave the taxi driver, taxi driver the name of his hotel, and then he started the clock. And he said to the taxi driver, do you know where a man can get a drink in this town? And the taxi driver reached under a seat, pulled out a glass, passed it over his shoulder, and he said, five dollars, please. So, in less than a minute, Izzy had a drink World in New Orleans. <laughs> and, so, and this is not an apocryphal story. This really happened. And um, you can read about it in the National Archives and all of that. After the Jazz Age came periods of fluctuating population and economic uncertainty, some of which led to the development of other iconic dishes like the poor boy. And of course, in 2005, we see the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. 80% of the city was flooded. This event radically impacted the city and caused it to double down to protect its culture, including the food and drink. Another huge environmental impact was the oil spill of 2010. But yeah, interestingly, these disasters really helped cement all that stuff that makes New Orleans special. And this about brings us to what the food scene is like today. But first, it brings us to a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. <laughs> well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, this multitude, this legion of cultural influences developed into two perhaps primary cuisines of the greater New Orleans area. Let's talk about Creole and Cajun foods. Let's. We've already said that Cajun is country and Creole is city, but the exact definitions and differences are complicated. We could do a supercut of the variety of answers we got to this question. We'll share a few with you, starting with Amy. I feel like um, we as Louisianians have probably done a little bit of a disservice in creating further confusion for people about the difference between Cajun and Creole. And they're very distinctively different. So if we look at our Cajuns, they came from French Nova Scotia, L'Acadie, but they were country people. They settled outside of the city. They were hunters, farmers, trappers. So the food was going to be a one-pot meal. And as other folks settled in the area, what might be added to that pot changed. Here's Liz Williams and Isaac Toops. It's really the simplest way to think about it, although totally not with all the nuances is that the three continents came together to form the basis for the cuisine. And our foods really reflect all of that. For example, our gumbo, we have three basic thickeners for gumbo. You have okra, which is African. You have filet, which is American. And you have roux, which is European. Now, you can use them all in one gumbo, or you use them separately, as that was traditionally, they were separate. Um, and you would use them when this was in season or that was in season. Everybody, everybody besides Native Americans were um, immigrants coming to South Louisiana. And what Cajun food is and what it was is still going to be a collaboration of different genres and, and different um, areas of land and location. And it still is today. And so. When I say I do new Cajun, well, I'm doing new Cajun now, but it's going to continue to evolve because we continue to uh, accept help and inspiration from uh, everyone that wants to be down here. And all, all of our cooking traditions are rooted in what was necessity. So, I mean, everything from uh, the confing of chicken and confing of sausage that people would have to bury under their house for preservation. We put rice in boudin because they were a poor community and we needed to extend it to make a meal. 
we put uh, sassafras or roux as a thickener in our gumbos and stews because we had to stretch those gravies and stretch those meals out. Then, running parallel to that, you've got the development of Creole cultures. Because New Orleans is a city with a strong emphasis on the importance of neighborhoods and generational families, Creole is perhaps a more faceted thing. Jessica spoke about that. (laughs) The definition of what it is to be Creole kind of changes every block in New Orleans. There are people who say to be Creole means to be a direct descendant of the original white settlers. That's one definition. There are people who say to be Creole is to be of African descent but born in this place. There were Creole there are Creole tomatoes. You can't grow a Creole tomato anywhere but in this place. Um, there are people who say to be Creoles is to be of mixed blood. There are people who say to be Creoles is to be from New Orleans. Uh, You've got a whole thing. I did a book called Beyond Gumbo, Creole Fusion Food from the Atlantic Rim. It's got about three pages of definition of Creole. It is not a simple thing by any stretch of the imagination. It is not. Not at all. Mm -mm. In the book she mentioned, she describes Creole cuisine as the original fusion food, a cuisine that allows for blending and the coming together of diverse elements. In those three pages, she identifies cooking techniques and culinary themes present in creolized food, what she calls a, quote, trans-hemispheric web of culture. The book also traces the origin of the word itself, creole, all the way back to the Portuguese word criar, which means to create. Aww. She goes into a lot more detail and nuance in her book, so we definitely suggest checking that out if you're interested. If you wanted to simplify, and you might not, Amy summarized it this way. If you were here in New Orleans, you were considered Creole originally, and it was kind of this sophisticated French food from our first French settlers, but being a port city, we're starting to kind of become this melting pot where all these flavors are coming in. So there's you know, Native Americans who are here, French, West African, German, Spanish, But Creole really means born of the colony. However, as tourism became more important and New Orleans increasingly marketed its cultures, the two could get a little bit muddled. And so we start to get some confusion for people in that, uh, you know, you can watch a commercial about New Orleans and hear Zydeco Cajun music, and then it's called Creole Seasoning Blend. (laughs) We also got to interview one Dickie Brennan. Brennan is a big name in New Orleans. Together, the family owns and operates 13 restaurants. On our first night, we ate at the eponymous Brennan's. And uh, indulge me for a second here and allow me to tell the story of how we got in touch with him. (laughs) So I literally just went on the website for Bourbon House, one of Brennan's restaurants, to the Contact Me page and wrote something along the lines of, hey, I'd like to speak to someone about the bourbon milk punch, which is their claim to fame. And they were like, sure, you want to talk to Diggy Brennan? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, we were like, yeah, yes, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> May we? We would love to. Huh. Oh, the whole thing was delightful. Uh, we told the story of us meeting Dickie Brennan um, when we first got back from our trip in the studio with producer Dylan. And then... 
we arrive and it's kind of rainy and kind of chilly and we can't get in to the restaurant where we were told to meet. Like, we're, you were outside with a notepad. Yeah, yeah, it's right here. It's right here in my notebook. I, I like, wrote this, like, we have an appointment. Can, right. And, like, holding it up to the window and, like, making sad faces at the at the hostesses inside who were like, we open at 11. Yes, they were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and so we went around to the other entrance because there was a second entrance that was, it was also in a hotel, so it was kind of the hotel main entrance. And there was a bar. And we asked the bartender, we said, you know, we're looking for Dickie Brennan. And he said in the most, like... <laughs> New Orleans way possible, I think. Yeah. He's, like, he's right there. Well, he's right over there. Yeah. And he was right over there I at a table. <laughs> a delicious plate of po'boys followed and a platter of fries and a lovely conversation. <laughs> As Dickie Brennan explained, neither Creole nor Cajun cuisine developed in a vacuum. It's hard for us to say this is a Creole or Cajun dish because they've all, you know, the regional seasonal products, you know, in both cuisines, and now they're blended, um, you know, which is exciting because it's food is always um, should evolve. And it's just like us. I mean, I think my palate evolves over the years, you know, whether it's food, wine, spirits. I have, you know, my palate keeps changing. So it's nice to see food evolving. Jessica spoke about that blending too, how these foods are so rooted in New Orleans itself. So the thing that's so fascinating for me personally about the food of New Orleans, certainly Southern Louisiana more generally, is how rooted in place it is. Mm -hmm. It is about the place. It is food that comes from here. You know, and there used to be a saying, there ain't no place quite like this place, so this must be the place. But this place is, has spawned these incredible dishes, these incredible things that are a little bit African, a little bit French, a little bit Acadien, a little bit all sorts of things that now turn up in these white tablecloth restaurants. You know, and the big food word today is appropriation. But at that point, it was all appropriation because right. everybody was busily appropriating everybody else's and trying to figure out what to have for dinner. Modernly, it's certainly true. These dishes are constantly being remixed as new peoples join New Orleans culture. And in any given best of New Orleans list, you're going to see those century-old white tablecloth places twined in with corner stores. But there's something else we have to talk about when it comes to New Orleans, and that's drinking culture. Mm -hmm. First, though, one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job 
involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. <laughs> well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. I would guess that for a lot of you listeners, when you hear New Orleans, you think drinking. Mm -hmm. Whether that's Mardi Gras related or in general, French Quarter, very late night. Shenanigans. Yes. It's one of the main reasons behind its tourist draw, the fact that you can walk around with drinks on the streets, or as they're called, go-cups. We got to speak with Elizabeth Pierce, founder of Drink and Learn, which is a walking tour that looks into the history of cocktails and cocktail culture. She also has a podcast, also called Drink and Learn, that you should all check out. Here's Elizabeth. You cannot understand New Orleans unless you understand it's drinking. You are not required to participate in it, but you at least need to know what's going on. So I love this, like, from the very earliest days, we were drinking, you know, for the sick and the children. Right. Um, but, but it's because, like, we were in a swamp. Life was hard. The government's ignoring you. If things are kind of crappy, then, like, you, you drink, right? This is what people do, and people continue to do in, in difficult situations. Um... But anyway, so all of these, like, facets contribute to an identity. And that, one of the pillars of that identity is about cutting loose and 
drinking is an integral part of that. Drinking is different in New Orleans, or at least it is among New Orleanians. Oh, yeah. It's not something you do to get drunk, or at least most of the time. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's not. (laughs) That's amateur hour. Children are exposed to responsible drinking at a young age, the idea of a go-cup or a before-dinner drink. We have a whole episode on New Orleans cocktails and drinking culture plans. Oh, yeah. But in the meantime, here's Elizabeth again describing the local attitude towards drinking. It's very civilized, and it isn't hasty. And if you have a drink in your hand, and this is true for coffee too, but if you have a a beer, it'll kind of slow you down. It makes you pause, kind of look around like, oh, I had noticed that house in my neighborhood before, that balcony, stop and listen to a musician. Like, it, it alters the way that you interact in public space. And the other thing that I think it does, and this is stretching it a little bit, but like, go with me. Okay. When you are in a restaurant, we all were all at a table, and if someone came and joined us, we would look askance at them. That is weird, because this is like our area. And it's like we planted a flag, right? But if you're in a bar, people sit next to you, and they will talk to you, and you do not think there is anything amiss with that. Now, you may not talk back to them, or they may be creepy or whatever, but the, the interaction is publicly sanctioned. And it often leads to some really delightful encounters, unexpected, you know, you meet people in a bar. You don't meet in a restaurant the same way. And so I believe that the walking with the drink, you carry the spirit of the bar with you, that it makes you just a little more open to the chance encounter, the possibility, um, yeah, to engage with the world around you. It's difficult to capture um, in audio in like a 40-minute to an hour episode everything that New Orleans is, the experience of being there. But it is heavy and joyous. It's the culmination of all of these cultures and all of this history. Super producer Dylan summed up his first experience this way in studio when we got back from our trip. I've never been anywhere, at least on that scale, because you can walk through New York and you can see all these different cultures coming together. But at that scale, I'd never been anywhere that had such strong influence from such different cultures that Mm -hmm. was coming together and that they were so determined to preserve and to promote and just the way that things come together where you can eat like four different places in the world in one bowl. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, yeah. Oh, this has, this has French influence. This has Caribbean influence. This has Italian influence. This has like the Creole Cajun influence. It's just, I loved it. I, I love being able to experience that through food because I don't know if I've ever been anywhere where I, I ate a dish and experienced so much of the world in one dish. So that was really, really cool. And Dickie Brennan told this story of a famous journalist listening to Brennan's family's complaints about New Orleans. He says, anywhere else I travel, 
certainly in America, there's only one other place that I can say the local people live life. He says it's New Orleans. Y'all live life. He says get over all the stuff not working. So here I'm the next generation, and I've already said I want my city to be great. You know, I want it to be perfectly clean and everything working and all that stuff. But when I think of that, it helps me get over my love-hate relationship where I'm like disappointed we're not doing something better because that man was right. I mean, we really connect with each other all day long and, uh, and we live life. So we come to the conclusion of the first of our New Orleans miniseries. We'll have new episodes on Wednesdays and old school traditional episodes that are tangentially related on Fridays and some bonus content every now and then on Saturdays. So tune in, yeah? You can contact us via email at hello at saverpod.com. Tell us where we should go next right now. Got to say San Francisco and in general California is leading. Okay. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod. Thank you so much to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. Also, thank you to all of our interviewees, and in many cases, the kind marketing folks who helped us get in touch with them. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. (laughs) You guys, you landed earlier than I did, and you made an immediate stop. Well, okay. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. No, no. I I am glad someone got to go. Okay. So, our Airbnb that we were staying at was right down the street from Willie Mays. Oh, it's, it's Willie Mays. Scotch House? Scotch House, yes. From Willie Mays Scotch House, which is this famous fried chicken place in New Orleans. It's in... This tiny like house. Yeah, it was a little. It was a little house. It was it was cramped quarters, but it was very cozy. Oh yeah, yeah cozy is exactly the word for it. Um, and we got a. I think you got a chicken strips meal. Yes, on a bed of okra. So much okra. Yes, fried okra, of course. Of yeah. course. Um, I got the three piece dark meat, uh, fried chicken meal. There was mac and cheese. The mac and cheese came with a side of peas that had been cooked in, as far as I can tell, just the best chicken broth that anyone has ever made. Oh, my goodness. They were, these peas were delicious. Oh. They gave us a lot of chicken. They gave us a lot of okra. Dainty scoops of macaroni and cheese. You know that they're very proud of that. And that they have to ration it out because it's probably very popular. But it was very good. Oh, and the cornbread was good. Oh, yes. It was very nice. Actually, Annie was awful. And... (laughs) You're lucky you didn't go. You know, spoilers, but on on the last day of our trip, there were leftovers and I had to throw them away. And it was one of the greatest hardships I faced on this trip. I stared at the to-go box. Thought, Could I get it through the TSA? <laughs> I don't know. Can you? Questions. Well, the TSA agent would be like, oh, that's Willie Mays. Of course. Come on through. <laughs> yes. To the front of the line. <laughs> it's not a liquid. I mean... I think you can take food. I think you're allowed to take as much food as you want. (laughs) That is an episode we should do in the future. What can you? What food is acceptable (laughs) through the TSA? But I am glad that you 
got to experience this. It sounds amazing. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? MMs and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter MMs. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter MMs and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.